This program is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks. You'll find over 100,000 titles in just about every genre. And if you want to listen to Laura Lipman's And When She Was Good and help keep this wonderful show going, sign up at www.audiblepodcast.com bat for a free audiobook, a 30-day trial, perhaps a hug in the future. Because sometimes you need more than a bubbly personality and a robust chicken to get to the other side. Good, good timing. Once again, with Laura Lipman, who is most recently the author of And When She Was Good. Laura, how are you doing? I'm doing really well today. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Um, So, let's get right into it. Uh, Chekhov has this famous rule, or so I have heard, that if you introduce a gun, it should go off near the end of the actual story. And in your book, we have a very intriguing paper shredder contraption that is installed beneath a false bottom in a file cabinet. Uh, This leads me to ask you, when you came up with this idea, did you have Chekhov's role in mind? But it also leads me to ask you, because when we talked before, uh, you told me that you basically read the entirety of your manuscript aloud before you submitted it. So, you know, how does this fastidiousness and Chekhov's law apply to an element like the paper shredder when you have a book such as this one where you are exploring a character in depth i'm wondering you know if there's a a little bit more liberalism in mind when it comes to this uh this extremely tight uh nearly one might say perfectionism that has entered into your writing process so there's just to start off here what are your thoughts on on these multifarious matters. I'm glad you mentioned Chekhov because I actually did have that in mind. Uh-huh. And yet just yesterday I talked to my sister who is a bookseller and a very careful methodical reader. She doesn't read quickly, so she does read carefully. And she said, you know, at the time I wondered why there was so much detail, but if you'd never come back to it, I never would have thought about it. But when you came back to it and when I realized why all that detail had been lavished on the furnishings of her office and in particular the design of these paper shredders and cabinets. She said, I, you know, I, I wondered if that was you know, an homage to Chekhov. And I said, yes, thank you, because at the time she was the first person who had noticed that. When I came up with that, I mentioned it to my husband, who's a writer, and he said, I don't know. It sounds a little James Bond to me. I said, no, no, really? it's really, it's very pragmatic. I've really thought a lot about this. I mean, I've said this before. I mentioned it in the book afterward one of my heroes was Donald Westlake yes and he maintained that if you were very thoughtful about your characters and your situations you would make it credible even to people who knew a lot about certain things if you were true to your characters if you just sat in your chair and thought hard such such an um, old-fashioned idea in writing fiction these days yeah and so In everything about this book, I sat in my chair and I thought hard. It's funny to me that now that the book is out in the world, there's an emphasis on, well, Laura Lippmann used to be a reporter, so she really knows a lot about the world of sex workers. And I did do research. I did learn some things. I'm by no means an expert on prostitution. I am an expert on 
the rather peculiar form of prostitution I created for this book, I sat in my chair, I thought hard about what kind of business this character would create. And that led me to her paper shredders. Yes. And you know, even to the detail that they're built by a Polish man who never smiles, but she thinks she sees a wisp of one when he understands the design that she has handed him. And you point to the fact that there's a relentless power supply. I think the fact is that you go to such degrees to describe the details of this paper shredder that one becomes willing to accept it. Although actually, I just I thought it was just a bizarre yet cool idea because I'd never seen that. I mean, did you encounter any sort of uh, <laughs> homegrown paper shredder set up like this at all, ever? Or no, but if you have a paper shredder and you read the warnings, yeah. and, and especially because a small child had come into my life, yes. not a lot about someone's hand yes. being inserted. Not to give too much away, but I don't yeah. think people would be surprised. It's not the what of it, but the who of it. The Temp had a very good paper shredding scene. Uh, there's that cheese ball movie, The Temp from the 90s. You remember this? There's an infamous paper shredder. Ah! I didn't yeah, realize that. But, yeah. you know, they warn you about your tie. Yeah, they yeah, warn you about loose clothing. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the, the average one that most of us have in our home offices would probably be quite painful but not do real damage. Yes. And, you know, the idea that it does make sense that she would want a way to with a turn of a key be able to wipe out the paper files that she's been obligated to keep just as i now i won't remember because i do have a poor memory but i was reading a crime novel recently and someone said no i'm not going to let you touch the computer because i know that there's a way to wipe out a computer with a few commands and and the computer has now been seized as evidence the, you know this is a book that's very much about the hubris of control, of believing oneself to be in control, of thinking that one can anticipate every single contingency. So it's very hard for me to think of myself as a perfectionist because alongside the other members of my family, alongside my own husband, I am a failed perfectionist. I'm much looser than everyone else I know and consider myself to be quite a mess. Perfectionism, however, can come from a more relaxed legato mode, I would argue. I have talked to numerous writers who are extremely uh, concerned about their sentences, but not nearly as concerned about plot. And people have differing levels of what they bring to the table, and I think all writers do. So, I mean, is this really something to define yourself by uh, as a writer? Is this really something you should define this novel by? I, I, I would actually encourage most writers to abandon perfectionism. You know, it's obviously impossible. Yeah. And I think it was Stephen King who said once that the reason you write another novel is because you can't write a perfect novel. Yeah. And so the paradox of perfectionism is if you achieved your goal, then you would stop being a writer. You would have to stop if you could, in fact, produce a perfect novel. And there are some writers in the world who it almost seems as if that happened to them. You yeah. know, you see writers who didn't write again after producing beloved and almost perfect works. Or who are burdened by the, the prospect of writing a perfect novel every time. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll name a name so you don't have to. Ian McEwen, I feel that this has happened to his work. 
and it's been sort of disheartening to watch him try to write perfect novels and because of that uh, have his voice kind of compromised by these very stylistic hyper stylized sentences that get in the way of the the life that he's previously been so good at I mean I wish I could credit it because I don't remember who said it but it was something I heard at the Theakston Old Peculiar Harrogate Crime Writing Festival which is that the book you write is a reaction to the last book you wrote yeah and so I think coming off a book like The Most Dangerous Thing, which had 10 or 11 points of view, depending on how one wants to count it, and was deliberately a very slow book, what I had said to myself is, I want to write a fast book, yeah. I want to write a page turner, I want it to be highly entertaining, and yeah. I availed myself of some larger than life details and some larger than life characters, and I really wanted to have fun. Yes. Although. Then as I got into this book, I could make it fast. I, you know, I could achieve the pace that I was after. You know, I found that I really couldn't make Heloise's world fun. Yeah. And it was my husband, Hugh, gave me advice, which he almost never does, by the way. That's yeah. really rare. And at one point he said, as I was sort of getting launched into the novel, he said, don't make her benign. Her world's not benign. Do you know the fact that the women who work for her get health insurance doesn't erase everything else about prostitution and it, it's not a business that one can be in and thrive in with clean hands and I thought that was pretty good advice sure well I going back to this element of wanting to write a page turn I did observe with this book that you took greater care than the norm towards making every sentence advance the story I mean and I want—I was curious as to what your early drafts looked like for this. Did you have a lot of baggage in your sentences that you just had to come in with a machete and just go wow, 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 uh, to mix my metaphors um, <laughs> to to in order to sort of get this absolute uh, tautness, which is a, it's, I think it's it's considerably tauter than your other works, I would say, and uh, by necessity because you've also created this nifty. Uh, two-part structure alternating uh, chapters situation which almost sort of begs almost you kind of painted yourself in the course you had to write sentences like that so so i was curious as to you know how you whack the sentences down this this lean i mean that just comes through multiple revision but i also think it again was character driven yeah you know heloise isn't telling the story but she almost could be this is almost her voice there's a coolness to it it's measured it's precise because Heloise prides herself on being precise in the usage of language and there's a dryness to it almost a distance that I think she herself might be able to have on her own life at least after all the events of this book have occurred and so her character drove the voice of someone very cool observant seeing everything taking its measure I had this unusual role model as a technique. If a technique can be a role model, <laughs> my role model for this book was the concept of bumpers on talk radio shows. Really? Which is the sequences that bring you in and out of the actual show yeah. it, and I, I do listen to Howard Stern I think Howard Stern's one of the best interviewer of creative people out there and that's what draws me to his show and I've always just sort of been interested in what takes you 
out of the break and back into the show, whether it's a piece of music. So I thought, as I go from present to past, from present to past, I need thematic bumpers that only I know about. They're not on the page, they're not really obvious, but if you were to look at each chapter, it's basically complementary. It's not random why we go to the past. I mean, typically, not typically, but often in a novel where you're in the present, but you go back to the past time and time again, it's always presented sort of as a flashback, a memory. And then she thought about this. These are not flashbacks. This is not Heloise's memory. These are the scenes from the past that explain what you just saw in the present yes. in terms of how she got there and how she is who she is. And so I had this, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really line up. But I was like, it's, it's like bumpers. I have to think about what's taking me into the break and out of the break. Did, did you make bumpers a study of yours? Did you study the way that radio bumpers were put together? I, I'm just curious. At that point, I, I did what I often do, and I created these not this non-textual outline for Got the it. book. Okay. And I assigned one color to the present, one color to the past, and then I looked at the shapes of those chapters. I decided whether the character was on an upward trajectory, a downward trajectory, or it was a push. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the chapters in the present tended to be kind of square and then they would get more ragged and ragged and ragged along the bottom because her life is shredding and I lined these up on a very long piece of paper I know it was very long because I was working on this book in New Orleans where we live part-time and our home there has very high ceilings probably at least 12 feet, if not 16 feet. I mean, they're really high. We can't change the light bulbs without an implement. And the piece of paper that I taped together from the ceiling hit the floor and rolled a little bit. So I looked at that, and that only took me through the first three quarters of the book because past and present intertwines until now they have combined. Synthesis has been achieved. and her situation has taken her to this breaking point where she must now figure out how to change her life. Did you ever have a road novel in mind based off of this? <laughs> I didn't actually, <laughs> but it really did help me. Yeah. It, it helped me a lot and I saw it and I could kind of see what was missing. Uh, that's the primary thing is that things were missing yeah. in early drafts. Uh, the primary thing that was missing was the character of Coran. Mm-hmm. the mother of Heloise's son's best friend. Yeah. You know, you look at the novel now, like, how could she have been missing? Yes. Like, well, because I didn't figure out how essential she was. I mean, Scott had friends and that there are these other mothers, but I didn't realize that she would carry almost sort of a secret. You know, uh, she, she had some of the answers for Heloise. Well, the interesting thing about the alternating s- chapter structure is that we see in the early parts that Heloise's past as Helen informs the present. But then with the birth of Scott, and as we start to understand Scott's role in her life, uh, it becomes absolutely the reverse. The present is now informed by the past. Um, I think I got that right. I think so. <laughs> but uh, but I, I was curious um, if you tried to get this inversion 
without the use of Scott. Because there is one point where, where of course, Helen gives birth to, to Scott, and immediately it says Heloise in the past, which I was like, oh, well, now I see what's going on here. Um, did you try to get that transition uh, without Scott? In the, or was Scott just the only way you could really effectively make that leap to to shift her own kind of uh, perspective to reverse the end of the, of the periscope, so to speak. Because of the way Heloise evolved with these short stories, there's never been, in my imagination, Heloise without Scott. Yeah. And so I don't think I could quite manage the trick of seeing a transformation for her without her son. Yes. That has always been the driving force. I mean, in the, in the two stories written about her, everything is about protecting her son from the life she leads. In those two stories, she doesn't face actual physical threats. Mm -hmm. She's not worried about something happening to them, but she is worried about um, her life being revealed. And so, yeah, no, I, I, could, I don't think I could have done it. I, I, don't think, I don't think Heloise would be who she is if she hadn't gotten pregnant and given birth. And for her, I think it's pretty obvious in the book, getting pregnant, becoming a mom, that is the opportunity for the great do-over. It is her moment to look metaphorically to her mother because she doesn't have any relationship with her mother and say, screw you, I'm going to do a better job than you did with fewer resources. I'm going to show you that you don't have to keep an abusive man in your life just because he's the father of your child. I'm going to show you that if you know how to make money and you have any self-respect whatsoever, you can be a great parent and kick the bum out. Yeah. And that's what she proceeds to do. It has a lot to do with, the, with her own experience as a child of feeling that she didn't get the chance of really feeling cared for and safe and secure. Yes. Well, there's also one interesting line, if you have to stop to consider the lie, the opportunity has passed, which is actually one of my favorite sentences in the book. Um, this might also serve, going back to what you were describing earlier about how you congealed these many perspectives together, as a great sentence for writing as well. Um, you know, the one thing that I, I, I noticed about, uh, about this was in addition to the taught sentences, just the fact that this kind of mimics Heloise's nature. She is a character who, in some senses, is defined by laws. Um, but did you feel that she was also someone who could not stop for a moment? What, what, what of this idea of, of the lies that she is driven by? Uh, she is a very skilled liar. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the things that's going on in the book is the father of her child, who's about as unsavory character, I think is the most unsavory character in the book, certainly in, in contention, he tells her very frequently that they're not that different. Yeah. And she is so keen to deny this, but she realizes that there is a germ of truth in it. I think over the course of 19 books, she is one of the most self-aware people I have ever written, and that she knows that she's made some pretty tough choices. She happens to believe that she's right to have made them. The, her child is, is almost a kind of religion for her. 
it is what she believes in, is raising this child to the best of her ability and being the best mother she can. Again, I talk about things that weren't in the early drafts. It also was not in the early drafts that Heloise and Scott attended a church. Yeah. And I got to thinking about that, and I'm a relatively new mom. My daughter is two, and... Is there a swear jar in the house like Heloise? Not yet. I'm sure there will be. I'm sure there will be shockingly soon. You'll probably make a mint with your husband. <laughs> That's right. Daddy will be filling the jar much faster than, than Georgia Ray. But uh, everyone I know, every parent I know has, even if they are essentially borderline atheist as I am, has decided borderline? that... You know, I, I think I use this line in the book is that, you know, I, I'm an agnostic, which is basically an atheist who's covering her ass, you know, yeah. sort of like, if I'm wrong, I'm fine with being wrong. It's okay. You know, You're, you want to be pragmatic about this. It's like, it's like, if, and if I'm wrong, I hope it's a really benign God who's cool with me being wrong about it. Yeah. Uh, because what I say is I, well, I assume the God is benevolent. Yes, I hope. But you know, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, if I'm really wrong, what can I do about it? But I, um, I, I'm very happy to raise my child in a religious tradition, and, and it was actually always understood in my household that we were going to raise my daughter as a Jew. She, yeah. you know, she will go to Hebrew school. She will be bat mitzvahed. Uh, this past spring, she got her official Jewish name, and uh, I guess it was probably right before I started writing the Heloise book, my daughter officially became Jewish because she is not my biological child she had to get dunked yeah. when she was about, she's barely six months old. And we had to go before um, three rabbis and talk to them about what kind of religious education we were going to provide in our home. And was I going to try to sneak a Christmas tree in there? I thought that was pretty funny. And, and then she had to um, go into the water over her head, you know, every, and, and, she was just shocked. Like, what are you people doing to me? Yeah. And then the rabbis began to sing, and she liked the sound of that so much she was over it. So, like I said, everyone I know is bringing up their kids in some kind of religious, um, some kind of religious tradition. But for Halloween, Scott is her religion. Yeah. And she, she would kill for him. That is a literal statement. She would kill for him. She would allow others to she would die for him and she she would allow others to die for him if he is a successful young man i mean it's like one of the most wistful passages in the book to me is when she sits in a wine bar at happy hour and just hopes that her kid can be a 20 something who sits in a wine bar at happy hour yeah because that's a world she doesn't really get to inhabit. I mean, she has the means now, but she's now living a life in which she doesn't believe she can afford the luxury of friendship. Yeah. So if she sits in a bar happy hour, she's sitting there by herself. One thing I have to ask you about, and I, I noticed pretty quick off the bat, were the sort of American touchstones throughout the book. You have these bouncers, George I and George II, and I immediately think, oh, George III, of course, King George. You have... Uh, Val and his Civil War uh, interest. You have Thanksgiving, which is the ultimate American holiday. There are numerous little Americanisms like that, which sort of suggests, well, I wonder if Heloise is kind of a, a, a uniquely American story, or she is in some sense defined by the American fabric, just as much as she is defined by a number of consequential setbacks that 
determined who she became. So, you know, what of this Americana? Is this a sort of like a wry effort on your part to just suggest that Heloise is just what America is going to put out? Hey, baby, stare at her in the face. I wish I could take credit for George 1 and George 2. I never thought about that until this moment. Um, I think I think military history in general is fascinating. And a lot of men I know have been interested in it, a lot of women not so much so. But I thought Heloise would be someone who would be drawn to, to military history and the idea of battle and knowing about it. To me, the distinctly American touch about Heloise's story is that the first time she realizes that her father is cheating on her mother with his 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 real wife because he's never divorced her is she sees him at the drive-in at McDonald's yeah and she thinks well it's a small That's town true, yeah. and there's not a lot of places to go everybody ends up at McDonald's and he was a car salesman and her mother was actually a car hop and she did deserve a break today <laughs> but you know so I do I do think it is an American story because I think it is interested in American values you know there's a moment in the book, and even though it's quite late, I don't think it spoils anything, in which Heloise says that she doesn't believe that prostitution is damaging the institution of marriage, and she believes that in many cases, prostitutes are helping to save it. Yes. Not a popular opinion when she asserts it, but not one I necessarily disagree with. I mean, we've there's been so much in the air about marriage and who's allowed to marry and who should be allowed to to marry and what is marriage and you know I think that Heloise is part of that debate in her own way you know if we're going to say that same-sex couples can't marry are we willing to say that people who can't keep their marriage vows are not allowed to be married that the accommodations that are made in in contrast, in conflict with the vows that people have taken. And so many marriages are filled with people who are breaking the vows they have made, but we don't seem concerned with that particular desecration of marriage, which is a true desecration. And perhaps we should not be. But yeah, it's it's a distinctly American story. And I don't, you know, it's it's set in a in a very American place. It's funny, back in Maryland, people can't even really figure out which county it's set in since I created a fictional suburb and was just yeah. vague enough. I was I was laughing about that. I was like, well, I said, you should at least be able to figure out it's one of three because it has to border on this one, which is real. And <laughs> There are loads of threads I can go with this last answer of yours because I'm thinking to myself, because I was going to ask you about uh, the manners of business that you actually look to aside from prostitution to guide your model of, of Heloise's uh, Madame Ring. Um, but you're also talking about marriage. It is interesting, of course, that Heloise, of course, is almost resistant to that institution. Simultaneously, the one business that does crop up when she is talking about her uh, her business, which is uh, WFEN, which I uh, thought for a moment was a radio or television station until I realized it was an acronym. <laughs> it could be. Yeah, but it was but it was uh, inspired yes. by a radio station, it was, as yes, you find out. Yes, exactly. Um, but, uh, but she does compare it at one point to a matchmaking service, and that seems to be the closest parallel, which of course leads us back to marriage again. Um, with all sorts of threads in my mind, let me try to formulate an inquiry. First of all, um, how did you set up the business. I mean, there's a lot of concern on your part for economics, 
Uh, I know you did research prostitution. There have been no shortage of madams, but it seems to me that you're the type who would actually find these parallels, not just matchmaking, but perhaps other ones. So I'm curious, number one, what other businesses you look to? Number two, you know, how much do you think that Heloise's business acumen was um, was in some way influenced by her uh, lack of acumen for relationships? Uh, it, it, when Heloise came to me, which is over 10 years ago, I immediately saw, I thought, that being a lobbyist would be a great yes. cover for yes. someone running a, a call girl service. I availed myself of some things that are not really standard practice you will not find call girl services where the person who is running it is also going out on calls. That's really unusual. That yeah. would probably not be true. And the idea that someone could set up a call girl service that doesn't take walk-ins, if you will, that is actually extremely far-fetched. But I go to great lengths yes. to create a model where you think, okay, if you did all of this, and, and it's it's a true story. It's a story I'm obsessed with, that there was a laundry in Baltimore that would not take new customers. And so, of course, everybody was desperate to go there, even though there was no evidence that it was extraordinary in any way. It was just that it had too many customers and could not take any more. And, you, you, know, yeah. you know, you could grandfather it in. So checking references as well, checking references, you know, doing everything you can to make sure that you know who your customers are. But also doing things, you know, to create customers when times are not good. Hooking them on to the six initial appointments. One thing, again, I mentioned listening to Howard Stern. One thing I learned listening to Howard Stern, I think I'll get this right, is he was talking to Sammy Hagar. Yeah. I think it was Sammy Hagar. It was, it was definitely a rock star who said at one point he realized that they were booking so much travel that he should just have his own travel agency and then he would get the fee for booking the travel for his own band. So I stole that for Heloise. Yeah. You know, she has this small travel agency that she has, a, that she has to work with a car service and also, and, and also that she has this uh, very high-end retail service, Yes, which is, again, intended as a cover. And, of course, that's very pointed because she is selling, if not a consumer good, then a very high price consumer service that benefits from having sort of a luxury label. I'm fascinated, fascinated with high-end consumer goods because they're just so bizarre. Like if you look at something like the story of Burberry, which was this moribund company, and then high-profile rappers began and and then all of a sudden it, it's reinvented yeah and you just look at it and like I really don't understand why people want to pay that much money for that raincoat yeah. but I'm fascinated by it and I really am fascinated by business I, it's, it's a shame I don't have a better head for it but for years I've actually read nonfiction narratives about business for entertainment yeah well, I mean, on that note, you do, in fact, bring up the 1%. There's a moment where Heloise becomes aware that she's actually in that bracket, and you write, it takes a lot less money than people think to be in the 1%. She thought that money would protect her, save her, and by extension, protect and save Scott. So the suggestion here is that basically it's easier for people to become rich than people realize, but it doesn't necessarily buy you the security that you would expect. You know, 
This leads me to ask, well, how much of this is Heloise talking, and how much of this is you, Laura Lippin, talking? Well, Heloise and I have some things in common. Uh, um, it's not that hard to be part of the 1% in terms of income. There are other ways to measure it in terms of what you actually own, yeah. where it's very hard. And Heloise would qualify under the first, but not the second. I've, um, you know, I'm part of that great American tradition on both sides of the liberal spectrum that votes against my own interest. I'm extremely liberal. I mean, by the nature of self-preservation, I should be marching up and down in the streets and going, Romney Ryan, Romney Ryan, Romney Ryan. And I am really not inclined that way. You know, I'm someone who believes that I should pay more in taxes. And my only wish is that I could have more say over where that money went. and. And I think, you know, as someone who has been lucky enough to put together a very comfortable living, primarily because my spouse earns a really comfortable living, I'm aware of what money can buy and what money can't buy. And there was a study while I was writing this book that said that basically the amount of money you need to make per year to be happy, I believe it was about $75,000 a year. And I think that's dead on. I believe this is a Toronto study, if I'm not mistaken. Possibly. Yeah. I, I, but I remember it really well. And they were saying, you know, above that amount, there's, there are diminishing returns. When I was starting out as a reporter, I made $175 a week. And that was not a lot of money, even in 1981. And I had to work part-time as a waitress in an Italian restaurant Aha. that is very much the model for the there place. There was a marshmallow mix with strawberries. And I was in ah. it up to my elbows. Wow, literally. Yes, yes. And, you know, I had to do that for about three months to be able to afford the rent on my apartment in Waco, Texas. Yeah. I, and I had I had no college debt, you know, praise my parents. I was that, when talk about one of the greatest gifts someone could have given to their kids is to go out into the world with no college debt was yeah. huge. Two years later, I got a job at the San Antonio Light. It was now 1983, and I was making $340 a week. And I would say from that moment on, I didn't really ever worry about money again. You know, I had enough money to eat and to make a car payment and to live in a cool, if somewhat rundown apartment in San Antonio. And so I was, you know, really aware of the middle class life that journalism brought to me, and I lived it very happily for a long time. And so when that study came out, it, it basically affirmed what I already knew. There was a new study last week that I saw, I believe it was in The Guardian, about how the very rich actually experience time differently, and the fact that they have the resources to do wonderful things with their spare time, but they have no spare time. It's actually a disadvantage to be rich when it comes to your sense of time. But the amazing thing is the thing that makes people feel better about not having any time is to give time away to a good cause, yes. to volunteer or do something nice for another person. And if you do that, it changes your relationship with the time you have and you feel better about it and that you have more of it. 
I'm, I'm fascinated by all this. I'm basically fascinated with how the mind works. And well, time itself is a currency. Time it's is a currency a that lives off the capitalistic grid. And if you aren't making enough money, you can at least have time on your disposal in many cases. And it's the one thing you cannot... You can on some level buy more of it because you can pay people to do stuff that you don't want to do or that you don't have time to do. And I, I'm certainly familiar with that and it certainly affected something that happens in the last quarter of the book, not, yes. to, not, not to spoil it, uh, but I certainly knew of such services that I wrote about. But, you know, I mean, I think time is kind of the great equalizer. We all get the same number of hours in the day and yeah. you know if you choose to use them to work you've made that choice you know you've said well and the one maxim in my household I say it to my husband Tom, all the time it's like don't expect anyone else to value your time yeah don't it's like people who would never reach into your pocket and take your wallet out and help you help themselves to you know a $20 bill will ask for so much more of your time and it's and it's like, why not? I mean, they're not mean. It's it's always for a good cause. It's you know for something they really care about, and it's a, and that's fine. That's great. And but you just have to be really firm and say, but I don't value that, or I can't afford to value that, or I have all these other things stacked in front of it. So yeah, I'm fascinated by the relationship between time and money, and of course with again in prostitution, the emphasis on time is so important. That is something I learned through research mm -hmm. that they're really on the clock and there is you know you you are all but hitting a time clock yes. when you work for a high-end escort service since we're talking about existential issues i do want to ask you about the fascinating topic you bring up in the book which is namely this notion that uh well providing uh not only benefits to your workers as a madam but also the notion that sex workers are entitled to workers comp um, I'll get into Sophie in a little bit. I do want to talk about her. But, but I am fascinated by this because we have nothing like this in America. The closest thing I would say we have, uh, I'm not sure if you were familiar with this story uh, a couple of months ago in Australia. This woman, this civil servant, not named, uh, she was actually having sex with someone and the glass fixture of the hotel actually fell on her. She was in the motel to... Uh, look over some budgets or so forth and she got workers comp initially she did and then it was overturned and so forth um the notion that in america that we would actually have anything close to that especially since i'm seeing more and more situations where we are now asked to waive our jury trial waive uh class action and so forth for every agreement even something minute you know it almost seems inconceivable that we would be granted that right do you think that there are any ways for america to consider uh, the rights of sex workers along these lines? I would, I would hope so. I had to, I, I realized really quite late in writing this book that I needed to sit down and think what I thought about the legalization of prostitution. And initially in writing the book I said, I'm extremely liberal. I believe that women have the right to do whatever they want to do with their bodies, so why wouldn't I be for the legalization of sex work? But as I read more and more about it, I realized that it's very tricky and problematic because if you legalize sex work, then you make it impossible to prosecute people who exploit others and press them into service as sex workers. And unfortunately, there will always be those people. I think you think particularly of um, illegal immigrants, for example. And there was a great New York Times piece about this 
section of Spain near the border with France where prostitution is de facto legal and there are women there who are essentially being held prison prisoners and forced to have sex because their families back home are threatened or they themselves are threatened yeah. you know like you're not here legally if you don't do what we say yeah. you know you're going to be sent back home and another more deadlier currency than even time or money yeah yeah and so i thought okay well some ideal system would be probably to decriminalize sex work itself. The worker should actually face no jail time and pretty minor fines. It, it should be just a really small misdemeanor. I honestly believe that. But the people who exploit sex workers should face really stiff penalties. And by the way, I recognize that Heloise is both sides of the coin. Yeah. That she is both um, a sex worker, but she is abetting sex work and I think there are people who would look at this and say you know she's trolling for young college students and luring them into this life you know she presents a very glamorous vision of it and she has to know that that some of the women who do it will be affected by it in a negative way she has to know yeah. that but what's also fascinating about Heloise is that she's very much guided by belief in the case of Sophie who is one of her employees. Uh, she has unprotected sex. You know, there's this idea that she may have HIV. And so she basically pays out $1,600, $1,700 a month uh, for her to get her appropriate medications. And that's predicated mostly on belief. And that's very interesting because you do go to the trouble of showing that she has come out of a very abusive situation with Val, that she has come from even even a home uh, uh, abusive situation. It's interesting that someone who would demonstrate such uh, deafness in her business would be utterly blindsided by belief. And I'm wondering if if really belief is is what is keeping her in action, but it's also uh, crippling her and, and why she can't really have a memory of what has gone before. You know, how did you how did you design this, and, and why? is so much of her character defined by this belief. Heloise has a big blind spot. It comes up with her first boyfriend, truly her only boyfriend. Yeah. Um, she has a blind spot when it comes to addiction and compulsive behavior because she herself is not the least bit inclined that way. Yeah. So she, it's a really big blind spot for her. She, you know, she, it's a blind spot for, in that she can't even understand why does her mother stay with this man and you know that's another thing that's put in economic things here she thinks about the tulips and like her father because he's scarce you know because men of his age are scarce in the town where she's growing up he must have incredible value yeah. even if she can't see what it is there's a nice element of timing midway through the book by the way <laughs> yeah. in terms of you know transferring on yeah. <laughs> that, that patriarchal legacy and so she does have blind spots. For me, a big piece of writing about Heloise, and this is definitely not my issue, but it is the issue of other people I know, is she believes if you're smart enough, if you're on top of things, if you anticipate everything, you can control things. Yeah. Um, someone in my family, someone who's close to me, was recently complaining about something that was outside of his, her control. And I said, nobody controls anything. Why would you be different? 
and he was like, I just thought I would be different. I thought I could control the and and and, and I I think that is very much something I was interested in in writing about Heloise is this illusion that smart people can control stuff. Yeah. And if you just think about things, and so you know, Heloise is human. She has blind spots in part because I don't think she's very gifted at empathy. As opposed to being empathetic, Heloise is the type of person who doesn't imagine how life is for other people. She imagines what she would do if she had that person's life. Yeah. Which is sort of a misguided kind of empathy. I mean, empathy is understanding the other person. Like, well, if I were in that situation, I would do X. Yes. She doesn't really understand, for example, the woman Audrey who works for her. Yeah. And she, she can actually be a little rude and dismissive about Audrey. How much do you think that her autodidactic nature accounts for this belief? Because you, you went to this trouble to make her someone who didn't really have schooling. She was sort of forced into work, and so she atoned for lost time. I mean, the whole idea of using the only currency hash for a library card just really, <laughs> like... That is that is beyond elaborate because I was thinking to myself, you know, if I wanted to get a library card and I didn't have a place to live, I could probably fake an address or I could probably tell say it was my friend's home, even even if I'm trapped in this kind of situation. That was that worked for me on a metaphorical level and the metaphor transcended any need for verisimilitude. But I, but it is interesting that that you would actually have her defined by the books that she reads, the list of great books that she reads. I mean, it also made me hyper-conscious because, of course, as you know, I, I am in this massive modern library reading channel. Right, right, right. You know, and, I, and I said, well, you know, I hope I don't actually end up like Eloise. But um, I was curious as to wh- where this, this originated from. I'd like to think that this foolish belief doesn't spring from autodidacticism. However, in thinking about Eloise, I also see clearly certain connections as to how it led her into this. Her need for control informed by this, well, if I read great books or if I get a handle on certain things, maybe I can, in fact, grasp it with my knowledge and so forth. Well, she's self-made. And it isn't so much that she's an autodidact, because there are self-made people who are not autodidacts. But the arrogance of self-made people in my field can be quite astonishing. And, gosh, you know, I never name names. I never use the name as an example. But I'll go out on a limb here. Um, although I do not know him personally, it is my understanding that, that Tom Clancy has a very large ego. Yes. Very large ego. And I would say some of the things that he said on the record would seem to suggest that. You know, he has compared himself to Shakespeare. Yeah. And, and I've thought about that. And I thought, you know what? Writing is one of the few professions in which a person who can become very, very rich through sheer individual effort. Yes, you have a publisher. Yes, they market. Yes, they do it. But basically, Tom Clancy became a multimillionaire because he sat down at his kitchen table when he was an insurance salesman in Baltimore yeah. and wrote a book that, that caught on, and, and he built his career from there. And I think the other people I know who have had extreme egos as self-made millionaires are plaintiff's attorneys. Yeah. Peter Angelos, who owns the Baltimore Orioles, you know, was a poor guy from Pittsburgh, and he built this business, you know, defending the rights of primarily people who had suffered from asbestos exposure. Again, when you've made tens of millions of dollars, largely 
on yourself, not because you own a company where there are 2,000 people who work for you. I mean, you know, even Bill Gates didn't do it alone. You know, there had to be this company in place, and, and he didn't even have the idea on his own. I mean, yeah. he was just really good at knowing what the good ideas were. Even Steve, well, actually, I think Steve Jobs is probably one of these people, yeah. too. Um, there's an incredible arrogance that comes with that. So it's not autodidactism. That can be quite benign and quite healthy. I'm always amused by it because, you know, there's it's almost a trope in the profiles of certain actors. Yes. You know, they always show up carrying their little copy of Faulkner, and, you know, they <laughs> and it's often the portable Faulkner. <laughs> it's not like you know something like the Reavers or something. Oh gosh, it's it's, it's like a I mean, like if, you, if you're going to carry around a Faulkner book, make it like like you know one of the Snopes ones or something. You know, or you know, there's such good obscure literary yeah, yeah, novels. Exactly. You know, like really do just just do or a carry a, a non-agrophonic one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 come on, you know, show up with that. You know, show up. It's some great Japanese novel, or which I haven't read, but you know, really, you know, something that the interviewer yeah. has to say, what is that? And like, oh, this, it's just a classic of 17th century Japan. Yeah. Oh, now in translation for the first time, et cetera, yes. et cetera. So, no, I have. But, but, but your concern here, I'll be anyway, so get back on the yeah. track. Your concern here is really about the sudden infusion of power or money into someone who is driven by ego, which possibly may be autodidactic in nature. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, you could be autodidactic, but you wouldn't have to be. Yeah, and yeah. Heloise is a self-made woman. She is very proud of herself. I mean, she really is. She's very proud of the business that she's built up. Uh, you know, she has achieved what she has set out to do. And I think there's a line in the book about how the neighborhood women who believe her to be a widow who's inherited a sizable amount of money through some kind of claim, you know, that yes. they don't know what it would be, some sort of legal judgment, that they can't help wondering how much money they would get if their husbands were hit by a truck. <laughs> it's an awful thing to say, but it's just that her life seems, from the outside, uh, very enviable. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I actually want to talk about the, the accountant guy, Leo. This is very interesting, too, about Heloise, because there's this menacing moment in her house. Um, in fact, there are quite a number of menacing moments in her house. I find that, you know, for someone who has gone to the trouble of being super secure, she has a lot of problems in her house. I thought that was funny. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it, it, it worked, don't worry. Um, but, um, but Leo is interesting because at the moment, this guy is threatened. This actually would hold up your theory that a little bit of information turns someone bad because he's this mild-mannered man doesn't know anything about what Heloise is doing. Suddenly he is given this bit of information and then he turns into a, a, a remarkable creep. Who knew that Leo had it in him? Um, but what's interesting is that Heloise's response during one moment, she spills wine. And as she does something quite extraordinary, she also is thinking simultaneously about cleaning the credit and the tile of the wine spill. Um, was the idea here to pit... Heloise's self-made nature against the American dream like this that that once one is one has the, the the castle one's home that there's nothing you can do but be but put that in comparison to every cataclysmic moment well it's about the two selves in conflict yeah it's about you know hey look 
this in here in this kitchen as you know me I am a hard-working suburban mom who is deserving of all of this and has earned all of this and look what you've made me do I not only have to deal with you but I have this wine to clean up now and it's all your fault and the kid and, upstairs and there's yeah. a kid upstairs that I don't want to wake up and it's it's really her two lives come crashing together in that moment and you know, she is someone who has shown time and time again in this book that she can be devious when she has to be, that she can be quite sneaky. She has never had that many physical encounters, although there is an allusion to a time that one of the other women who lived with the pimp, as, as Heloise did, came at her. And, you know, I think there's a sense that it wasn't very successful. Yeah. And, you know, that, that, and that what was mainly offended in that moment was she was still Helen then, was her sense of dignity. Like, yes. Like, you know, come on. I, I don't fight people. And, you know, I do think that in her own way, she's really a bourgeois. Yeah. You know, she she's not standing back and questioning the value of the nice house in the good school district. Uh, when she went shopping for that house, she was, as always, very cagey, very smart, uh, very good about the psychology of getting what you want at the best price that you want. Sure. But she values it. And she is not happy at the moments in the book when that life is threatened or when it appears that she may herself have to abandon it. Yeah. It, it is... It's a badge of honor for her to live as she does. And when she does make a trip back in time, as it were, and confronts the place where she grew up and sees it afresh, sees the tacky items, sees and finds them tackier still, part of what's going on is that She's kind of glorying over her mother in her own head that, that she has achieved so much more. Yeah. But she is also, going back to the question of belief, very much willing to believe in Val when it is clear to the reader, at least this reader, that this guy is totally playing her like a puppet. And, she's, and she's so young. I mean, She's young, but I, it's, it's almost as if she can get away with covering things up, but she still needs something to believe in. Not necessarily religion, not necessarily America, just some other human being. And the fact that she puts it into Val is, is most interesting. Well, as he says, they have a lot in common. Yeah. And I did think a lot about, it's in the book, I did think a lot about the fact that most people who share a child do have these endless conversations about the errand lists and the chore lists and did you do that and did you go there and did you see she has awful diarrhea and did you pick up the milk? Val, of course, doesn't even know he has a kid. Heloise is never going to mention the kid to Val. And so unmoored, if you will, from the domestic conversations that most couples have, these are two people who, over the course of a long time, get to have primarily pretty intellectual conversations. They get to sit down and talk to each other as two adults 
they're never interrupted by a child's whine or somebody else's needs. They, they don't have all this back and forth about, did you do this? Did you do that? And I think it does allow them to develop this weirdly fond relationship. Yeah. That, you know, yes, Heloise put him away for life, but she does have kind of a sneaking respect for the kind of businessman he was. I mean, she she took advantage of one of the few mistakes Val ever made. Yeah. And, and it is an atypical mistake that he made, that, that he did something that allowed him to, to be caught and convicted of a crime.